0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Herron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Movement Watches, Blue Apron, The Night Call, the great courses plus and our contributors at patreon.com two weeks ago we began a series on giants in that first show we laid down the groundwork that would point to some of the origins throughout human history that seem to have given birth to the legends and lore surrounding the idea of men and women whose physical stature exceeded the average height of today's people by up to several feet Did all of these tall ones suffer from medical conditions that lead to unmitigated growth? Or were some of them simply genetically taller than we are today? Members of what would now be an extinct species of mankind? Tonight, we will look at that and more as we dive back into the world of giants. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It was taught by the wise men of the Sioux tribe that the earth was originally peopled by giants, who were fully three times the size of modern men. They were so swift and powerful that they could run alongside a buffalo, take the animal under one arm, and tear off a leg, and eat it as they ran. Buffalo Bill Cody from The Last of the Great Scouts, written by Helen Cody Wetmore and first published in 1899. Join us tonight for part two of our series on giants. <laughs> 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 Who's that? The, you, that was, okay, sure? no, no,
1: see, the problem, right. the problem <laughs> here take. is, let's just write it. There, we're never going to make it fit. See, the thing here is, folks, when we do a long quote like that, we're trying to get everything wrapped up <laughs> by the end no. of the theme. Sometimes we have to go a little bit further. Yeah, I wanted to fit in my... Boy, it's a
0: good thing I didn't go full Sam Elliott. Yeah. <laughs> all right of course commercial let's roll into the next part of the outline all here. right and we're back <laughs> <laughs> that we
1: are. Uh, it's been a busy week for us. Even though we were actually technically dark last week, we did release a bonus show of an interview we did with Chris Cogswell from the Astonishing Research Corps about his new position as Director of Research at MUFON. So if you skip that one, you might want to check it out. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it was. And it was both comforting and a little strange because we've known Chris for a while now and consider him a good friend and collaborator. But it was also a little weird because... Although we talked to him briefly on the phone before, we mostly know him through text, you know, our collaboration app River and yeah. emails and just mostly I know him from his voice from listening to him on his own show, The Mad Scientist Podcast with Marie Mayhew, uh, who by the way is now getting recognized at Coffee Houses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Which is, laughs>
1: she's that's, got like that's a, freaking her out. She's
0: got like a debit card
1: that says you must look for the signature or match the <laughs> well, signature so she has to get out her yeah. ID and she got clocked by a burrito was like, do you listen to a show called Astonishing Legends? And she was like, yeah, why? And he goes, are you the Marie Mayhew or something to that effect? <laughs> right. She was pretty freaked out. Yeah, so. no, I,
0: I think, yeah, then she karate chopped him in the throat and ran out of there. <laughs> <laughs> So well, that's how, that's how yes. I want to picture yes, it. She yeah. should
1: just have a shirt that says, Do not approach. <laughs> Do
0: not approach. Well, that's why you <laughs> got to match the car because uh, the real Marie Mayhew is quite dangerous on the street.
1: <laughs> While we're on the housekeeping, I did also want to take a quick minute to acknowledge the work of one of our unsung heroes here at the show, our editor, Sarah Wendell. For the first, uh, oh, I don't know, year and a half, back when the show made less sense and the sound design was poorly implemented, I was editing it. (laughs) Scott (laughs) is great at editing picture plus sound, but when it's just sound... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, after having been an editor of TV commercials forever and a day already, before we even started this, it didn't take me long to get sick and freaking tired of cutting our show, especially after a long week of research and recording, and... I got to tell you, it was just the last thing I wanted to sit down and do.
0: Yeah, there's really nothing more grating than the sound of listening to your own rambly voice after that, right? Yeah, thank you for saying my own instead of just mine. Well, no, it's both of ours because, no, we have to QC it. And then after that's all done, it's like, I really should listen to these shows. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, I don't like hearing my own voice.
1: You're fine. So. Well, way back then when I was like, I thought, you know, there must be somebody out there that could cut our show. And I reached out to some people that I used to work with, a former executive producer who was a good friend of mine. And she recommended Sarah, our editor. And the rest is history. The rest is history, And the rest... <laughs> And the rest is history. Now you can see why we need her.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, we're not very easy to edit, mind you. You know, Scott frequently forgets what he's talking about, and I I can get rambly, you know, sometimes. I mean, not all the time, but you know, believe it or not, I do have an overall idea in my head of the points I'm trying to make. But sometimes it can take a while to get to my point, and then I remember, you know, on the fly, in my head, Something I wanted to include, so I, I try to work that in. I make a little side trip, but I've been getting better at getting back to it because I am conscious that the listener is waiting for me to get to the point. And I'm going to lose them if I don't make the point at coherent and understandable, uh, you know, because at the end of the day... Oh, right. Uh, where was I? In real life, we're not nearly as smooth as Sarah makes a sound.
1: That's the truth. And I say all this now because last week's episode was one of the trickier edits. Sarah not only patched it up, she made it flow seamlessly. It was no small task. And by the way, Sarah, thank you very much for uh, cutting this statement about how cool we think you are.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. I love doing it. Yes, thank you. Without you and Tess and Ryan, our sound designer, as well as all the free searchers in the arc, we would be lost at sea, like the Mary Celeste. And lastly, this is episode 98 of our show. That's right, 98. Our first show was posted in October of 2014, And time has really flown by since then, I gotta say. At least it feels that way to me, anyway. But after careful consideration, amounting to nearly 10 minutes of uninterrupted thought... Well, we did get that one phone call. Thank you. After five minutes of uninterrupted thought, we decided that we wanted to do something very special for episode 100 of Astonishing Legends. Thus, Arkapalooza was born. Uh, This is
1: going to be a somewhat crazy episode where we're going to have several members of the Astonishing Research Corps, or ARC, on the show for the first time to share their own personal stories, framed by a panel conversation with me and Forrest, as well as Tess and other selected members, which means we'll be keeping the bleep button handy for that one. Right, Sarah? (laughs) That's going to be a
0: blast. Well, I mean, for us
1: anyway. Hopefully you guys will like it too. There's this thing that happens when we do a topic where suddenly it seems like it times out perfectly With news in the world. Have you noticed that, Forrest? You're going to think I'm crazy here, but just... Sometimes. Run with it. Okay. Sometimes we follow stories like we did with the imminent disclosure series. That was a follow because the New York Times did that article first, Mm. and then we came out talking about it. However, we had mentioned prior, as that article connected, Skinwalker Ranch had been a big series on our show. And that was all connected to Bigelow, and all that stuff preceded that New York Times article by several months, if not up to a year. Mm -hmm. There's other times when it's even more of a coincidence and it seems crazy. For example, right as we were doing the series on Kelly Hopkinsville, we found out after we'd started it that we were releasing the final part of it two days, just two days, before the 62nd anniversary of the alien encounter at Kelly Hopkinsville. And this day also happened to be the day of the solar eclipse last year. And on top of that, not only was Kelly Hopkinsville perfectly in the path of the totality, it was the point of greatest eclipse. So I thought Uh, it was pretty crazy. You know, I'd like to be able to say... As, you know, you and I are both producers of the show, I'd like to be like, well, yeah, we timed that show out to perfectly release with the totality of the (laughs) the, – anniversary. we didn't do that. We just were like, let's do Kelly Hopkinsville, and then poof, part three
0: was right on the eclipse. Well, now that that you're mentioning it, that was uh, the most serendipitous, I think, uh, airing and then newsworthiness later on. Right. Yeah, so sometimes, as you're saying – something will pop up and it seems uh, there it, there's a connection there.
1: This is not as big a story but I still thought this was interesting. We're doing this show on giants released almost spastically randomly due to our astonishingly inefficient haphazard workflow. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> we're getting better at it. And lo and behold, 6 days after we posted part 1, there's this publicity event in Egypt at the Great Pyramids no less, where in an effort to drum up flagging tourism for the region, the world's tallest living
0: man at this moment and smallest living woman met. Yes, of course. They always have to get the tallest person, man or woman, together with the shortest opposite person. Yeah, this guy Sultan, he's the tallest guy right now, Exactly. Right? So getting back to this video, and it's very cute. She's from India, yes. I believe. Yes, She's featured in American Horror Story. Yes, she's been on as TV. A character. Yes, right, that's right. right. Yeah. But his name is Sultan Kosen, and he's 35 years old, Kurdish. And only one of 10 people in the world in recorded history to measure over eight feet tall. That's He's, right. Those people that they've actually measured. Yeah, exactly. As opposed that's to ten, right. tall tales or right. There's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to happen. Yeah. But even in the 20th century here, they're somewhere where they either don't want to be bothered by it or they come in. I think there's one gentleman. Well, he had to go in for a driver's license. Yeah. They measured him then. But it's not really that official. So when we talk about, I know Guinness uh, World Records may sound a little bit circusy, but they have very strict measurement standards. Yes, they do. And so it has to pass some muster before they will list you in their records. Yeah. So if you see a feat, a record of something, and it has been verified by the Guinness Book of World Records, you know you can trust it. It's a very strict standard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's the case with Sultan is that he had a tumor that has been removed that caused his gigantism when he was younger. Right. However, even after the removal of the tumor, he continued to grow. Yeah. The tumors are usually on the pituitary gland,
1: and they create excessive growth hormone and in uh, younger folks, this is manifests as gigantism. And in older folks, it manifests as acromegaly, which has uh, different symptoms. It can still cause increased height, yeah. but it also can cause exaggerated facial features and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, you could get joint pain, headaches, blurred vision. Yes. Uh, really, I think the difference is that when you're still growing, acromegaly happens after the growth plates have sealed over on the ends of your bones. Yes. So it's a cartilage growth plate. Basically, you stop growing, except that you keep going. Yeah. But you're past adolescence and into maturity. Yeah. So in your adolescence and youth, it's gigantism. Exactly, yeah. as, uh, as you would say. Right. I would say like, exactly. Exactly. Okay. The woman who
1: he met in Egypt, the sultan met in Egypt, her name is Jyoti Amje. Her height, as recorded by the Guinness Book of World Records, is two feet and one inch. Now, here's another amazing and shocking coincidence. Yeah. The difference in height between Jyoti and sultan is is exactly my height of six feet, two inches. How about that? <laughs> well, that's really a stretch. It's a stretch. That's yeah, not, yeah, sorry that's not synchronicity. And,
0: uh, yeah, really no pun intended there either. And, right. and no, you're just fishing for stuff now.
1: Yeah. Okay, before we move on, I did want to mention a list of some of the more famous giants in human history, because we would be remiss if we didn't include them in this series. And I want to start out with Robert Wadlow. He's
0: always pictured with uh, small people. Or, yes. or people in his own family. Yes. Just to point out, you know, the difference. People want to see that kind of... Of, uh, differentiation. I, I grew up obsessed with him because he
1: was the giant in the Guinness Book of World Records. When I was growing up, it was him and Sandy Allen. Yes. yes. Right. Sandy was seven foot seven and a quarter yeah, inches. That's right. Mm-hmm. They were both in there at the same time, even though Wadlow died much earlier, and we'll talk about him a little bit, but yeah. he was eight foot 11. He, this was a big man. He's the biggest man in recorded history. Of the ten, Right. I
0: think the top 10 of recorded human beings. He's number one. He is number one that we know of. And uh, we might mention here in a minute some of the ones that have been unsubstantiated because what you see when they are throughout history and unsubstantiated, unverified. Unverified. The heights grow... Even further, yes, we're talking nine feet tall now.
1: Well, yeah, and you find these guys that will refuse to be measured. The ones yeah, that my... are like when Guinness calls and they're like, "Yeah, come on over, you can measure me <laughs> exactly." And then there's the other ones who're like, oh, "I'm sorry, I gotta wash my hair; it's not a good day, <laughs> right. whatever." But I'm taller than that guy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so,
0: well, <laughs> there's what happens in antiquity here, and we're talking the 19th century here. I'm looking at Theodore Machnow. Of Russia and Belarus, he is reportedly was nine feet, three inches tall. Now it's getting even more unusual. Yeah. You could say. So John Middleton, the child of Hale, 1578 to 1623, lived to be 45 years old, reportedly nine feet, three inches tall.
1: Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that doesn't make sense, but I mean, obviously we can't disinter people and you also, but he couldn't be measured and there were no photographs. And on top of that, when you get to that size, you're reaching the limits of what the human body can support.
0: Yeah. And sometimes they're hard to measure because at these extremes, you know, sometimes there's spinal curvature. Uh, That was uh, the case with Zhang Jinlan, who was born in 1964, lived until 1982, unfortunately passed away at 17, but she had spinal curvature and could not stand at full height, I think towards the end of her life. So sure. sometimes they're hard to measure, but she was the only woman verified to have reached eight feet tall. That's the
1: other thing I would say about some of those older cases where they say, oh, nine feet tall, lived to be 45. Those two as a combination seems unlikely in light of what the body has to do to uh, for you to survive that long. And specifically when we're talking about someone with a rare disorder. Right. It's a different idea from the bigger picture of this series on giants in the idea of a, a species that has grown to that and all the organs are designed for it. Exactly. As opposed to right. a person that is having a overproduction of growth hormone. Right. Because the amount of work that the heart has to do to pump to a large body like that yeah. is a lot more than a lot of folks can handle.
0: Hey, it's Tess. And when I'm not researching for Astonishing Legends, yeah, I'm still researching for Astonishing Legends. So let's get back to the show.
1: All right, before we move on from this, I did want to mention Robert Wadlow again because, again, yeah. he, for me, was the iconic giant. And I had the Guinness Book of World Records when I was a kid. I, I think had we this, all did. The yeah, small a lot of us one did. that right. was really thick. Yeah. It was like two and a half inches thick, three yeah. inches and it was kind of small and just filled with pictures. And I bought some of the new ones, and they're good, but they don't have that same magic. I gave one to my son. I was like, check this out. But now they've broken them out, and all these different little ones. It's like science records, whatever. Oh, it's like, I, I liked the- The compendium. The, the compendium. Yeah. I want everything in there. The guy the guy with the crazy fingernails and the- Yeah. What were those twins that, the really heavy twins that rode the teeny tiny motorcycles? Oh, yes, they were all. I mean, the the McGuire I brothers, think so. I think they were. Anyway.
0: Chang and Ang-
1: Here's a story about them. (laughs) from your hometown. The original first Siamese twins, not my hometown, but they did settle down in North Carolina, Mount Mount Airy, North Carolina, very small town. It's actually the town that Andy Griffith named Mayberry after. That's right. You
0: didn't really see them on a show, though.
1: No, you didn't see Chang and Ning on (laughs) the show, but my wife's sister and husband are both Methodist ministers, although they're not there anymore. For a time, they were stationed in Mount Airy. The church that my wife's sister was a minister for the house, the manse, was a house that had been built yeah. by Chang and Ning Bunker. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Their, uh, Their relatives the are still The congregation was all bunkers. Yeah. So, and I, honestly, I would like to go up there and do a show at some point. That's something that's totally doable. It's super fascinating. They have a lot of descendants there. I don't know. I mean, all the things that are difficult to do. Imagine building a house with your Siamese twin.
0: Well, you got to be very coordinated. Indeed. (laughs) Who's who's holding the nail? Um, I made that joke before. Yes. That's one of our
1: patented tangents. Um, Right. I want to come back to Mr. Wadlow.
0: Out of the recorded history of the modern era, contemporary history, he stands unchallenged. Mr. Wadlow does. 8 feet, 10 inches tall. 8 feet,
1: 11.1. That's right. Yes. He is less than one inch shy of nine feet tall. Right. And when you see these pictures of this man, it is just amazing. He was born Robert Pershing Wadlow on February 22nd, 1918. He died in July of 1940. The tallest person in medical history for whom there is irrefutable evidence At 8 feet, 11.1 inches. And I'm taking this from a website called thetallestman.com, which is a really, really amazing website. Whoever has compiled this information, it's very thorough, and it's not just men, it's women as well. It's thetallestman.com. We spent hours there. But um, Mr. Wadlow is often known as the Alton Giant because he was from Alton, Illinois. That's right. I guess when he died, it was in July of 1940. And on the 4th, he had been making a professional appearance at the National Forest Festival. And a faulty brace on his legs, which he had to wear because he was so tall. And it's like we were saying earlier, it's difficult to be that tall, had irritated his ankle, which caused a blister and a subsequent infection. The doctors treated him with a blood transfusion and emergency surgery, but his condition worsened. And on July 15th, he died in his sleep. He was only 22. Yeah, that's uh,
0: 490 pounds at that point. Yes, that's really sad because usually people don't live that long. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it happens, but it's more often than not they're gone way before their time. In the case of Cecil Bowling, he was born in 1920, lived to uh, the year 2000 to the ripe old age of 79, and he was 7 feet 8 inches. That's kind of an exception in this list of the tallest people. And usually, yeah, there's a health problem going on. And not only do you have to deal with these health issues, because you're stretching the limit of biology for human beings at this point, there's also tremendous weight involved being that tall.
1: Right, and again, there's a difference between what the reasons are contributing to your height, because you can be just genetically naturally tall, but you also might be under the influence of a pituitary gland issue or a growth hormone issue. Right,
0: right, so it's not unusual to be three or 400 pounds. Yeah,
1: when Wadlow passed away, He was a pretty big deal. He was well-liked by the world at large, honestly. And 40,000 people attended his funeral. And he was buried in a half-ton coffin that took 12 pallbearers to carry. And then there was uh, concrete poured on top of that. What the tallestman.com was saying, that it's believed that his family were concerned, that, you know, people were going to dig him up and and turn his skeleton, you know, try to examine him. And they didn't want that to happen. He apparently had shown no signs of slowing down, even at his death. So he might have gone on to be nine feet tall had it not been for that infection. uh, It would have been truly amazing. No one has come close to him in terms of documented guys. I I do want to mention a few other ones here, and you're going to find out why in a second. Uh, Richard Keel, who was Jaws from the James Bond movies, everybody, he was seven foot one and a half inches. Mm -hmm. Although when he got older, he was slightly under seven feet. I also want to mention Matthew McGrory or Matt McGrory because he's one of my favorite modern giants He's since passed away, but he was in the movie Big Fish, which is a great depiction of a folkloric giant. That whole movie is about folklore, and I I really love that movie. Matt was actually born in Westchester, PA in 1973. He was 15 pounds and 2 feet long when he was born, and by the time he graduated kindergarten, 5 feet tall. Wow. He eventually got to be 7 foot 6, wore size 29 shoes. And this is interesting. He was never tested for any physical abnormalities I guess that was probably a personal decision on his part. He worked as a bouncer at a bar in his hometown of Westchester, where he became friends—this is, again, from tallestman.com—with Bam Margera and the rest of the Viva La Bam crew. (laughs) (laughs) So, McGorry did pass away in August of 2005, out here in Sherman Oaks, not too far from where we're recording. Yeah. I guess he was living with his girlfriend at the time. He was 32 years old. He died of heart failure.
0: Uh, see, so, there you go. Way way too young.
1: Yeah, way too young. And again, that's a great movie if you haven't seen it, Big Fish. I really loved it. His character in it was uh, very endearing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a few other ones, of course. One of the more famous ones, this guy is the only person ever to have been recorded to have been both a dwarf and a giant. Adam Rayner, born in 1899. Died in 1950. He had acromegaly as well. There's Andre the Giant, who I can't remember if we've mentioned yet. Obviously, we're going to talk about him. He was billed in his wrestling days at seven foot four, but he actually was apparently around seven feet tall. And yeah. he had acromegaly as well. We got Jorge Gonzalez, who wrestled under the names El Gigante and also under the name Giant Gonzalez. And uh, he passed away in 2010. There's Big Show, seven feet tall. Yeah. And we can't talk about giants without mentioning the consummate giant, Carl Stryken, who is a Dutch actor. He's seven feet tall, and everyone who's ever seen Twin Peaks or the movie Men in Black or The Addams Family knows who this guy is. He played Lurch in The Addams Family. He plays the giant or the fireman in Twin Peaks, both installments of Twin Peaks. He was Mr. Hom in a famous episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. What I like about Carl Stryken is that we interviewed him.
0: <laughs> He'll be happening
1: again he, <laughs> here. Yes, He is going to be on our show, believe it or not. It's pretty amazing. We reached out to him and he said yes. And we have already interviewed him and we're going to have him in part three of our series on Giants. So yeah, if you're a fan... Yeah, super nice guy. Yeah. yeah. He was a lot of fun to talk to. And he had some interesting things to say about actually being a Giant.
0: Yeah, and a lot just about art and you know yes. what he's into and uh, what it was like to be on Twin Peaks. So if you're a fan... Tune in for that.
1: Yes. Part three of our series on giants. Aren't you glad you wrote this one out? Some people probably just (laughs) skipped it. They were like, giants,
0: what are you talking about? Let's just go to part three. I'll skip part two, go to part three and see if there's any interesting uh, Yeah, now you can just turn this one off. Yeah,
1: okay. Well, we do have some more things to say here. I'm sure there are those of you that are wondering about the horned skull... We mentioned at the end of part one, our cliffhanger. <laughs> we always try to look for something to bring you back. <laughs> Did we mention that? Yeah. yeah. We haven't really followed up on that. So let's talk a little bit more about the Spanish Hill mound.
0: Well, this is the case which I think sparked this uh, gigantic rabbit hole odyssey that we've been on. Yeah, I'm still mad at Force. Aside uh, from being hate. here in the studio,
1: this <laughs> is the only place in which I'm speaking to him because oh, dear. he tuned out when we were focusing this. He was like, let's do the skulls with the... And then I got into the river and then the river yeah. went crazy. Yeah, that's ri- your or, own or, sorry, fault. Sorry, river. Yeah. I have to explain what that is. River is an app that we use for the Astonishing Research Corps and I call it the river which is dumb, but it's spelled R-Y-V-E-R. So we're all in there. The research Researchers, everybody's going crazy with all this giant stuff. Like so many, I was like, well, "Yeah, we can talk about it all." <laughs> and you know, cut to it's yeah. you know ten o'clock at night. We've been working on research and an outline for like five days. We usually take two, believe it or not. Oh, I know, I know. You can't tell,
0: right? Uh, but anyway, <laughs> and Forrest was like. Oh, I didn't mean for it to be all of this. Well, <laughs> I didn't. No, stuff was coming in. That's the thing. You know, we have uh, volunteers that'll throw uh, articles in there and, researchers. and research. Yeah, they do a lot of hard work on their own in their own spare time, and you know, hats off to them. Yes, and they'll find a lot of great stuff. My point was that yeah, it expanded into all giants. Yeah, everything giant. But this case is one of the more famous ones that initially piqued my curiosity about it all. Because, yeah, there's seven or eight foot tall people around nowadays, and I'm sure there has been all throughout antiquity. Actually, we're going to find uh, some cases, even in ancient Rome, that's been the case. But ones with horns, yeah. matching two horns coming out, that gets people's attention. So that's the case, though. This is one of the more famous cases of, let's say, late 19th century burial mounds being disturbed or burial places being disturbed and finding some really long skeletons. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is either called the Tioga Devils or the Tioga Giants or the Spanish Hill Burial Mound Case or the Sayer Case, named for Sayre, Pennsylvania. At the time of the find, that was the closest town, right? Right. It shifted a little. I'll explain that here coming up. Yeah. But I'm going to basically read you the uh, little excerpt here or the, the paragraph that comes from a website, Biblioteca Pleiades. And it's a fun site. They're real brief articles on on all the stuff that we kind of talk about and it gets pretty fringy. Yeah. It's great fun to read. That's why we love it. And we'll look for bits of information here. But I want to uh, recap it with this summation of the story. No, right now this is from the blog post by Mary Sutherland from two thousand four, right? Exactly. So what's interesting here is is like a lot of our topics that we do a real deep dive on. You'll wonder about some bits of info. It's like that can't be real, or or is that real? Is that how it was reported back then, and and what's stuck now? You'll see what I'm about to read you repeated, cut and pasted over and over again. Not into pasta. yeah Yeah, exactly. <laughs> into websites now. I can't blame skeptics and critical thinkers who get mad at this because we look at it as fun. We do the research on our own. We make our own observations and judgments. But a lot of times bad information just keeps getting... It gets cloned and cloned, cloned, and, and, cloned. and cloned. Yeah, yeah. And, so, when, and
1: especially when it's older historically, it's hard to
0: know... That it is all based on a real flimsy starting point. Right. So not to say that Mary Sutherland's reporting here is flimsy, because I think we maybe we found... Yeah, I'm not saying that. No, no, no. I think what maybe we found, though, where some of these items were picked up, where she got them, and then she does a little, you know, a couple of paragraph write-up, and then people start copying, pasting... Her findings. Yeah. Here is the excerpt. And again, I believe she wrote this article in 2004. You can find some of her work on the Burlington National UFO Center website. So it kind of ties in because it's possibly aliens or just something weird and paranormal. Yeah. And she's put together a page with some of the more out there... Thoughts on this about... Uh, on gi- the Spanish Hill Mound. Not only that, but giants with horns, instances in history and antiquity, the Nephilim, all that kind yes. of good stuff. So that's, that's what we like reading about. But here's her two uh, paragraphs. Human skulls with horns were discovered in a burial mound at Sayer, Bradford County, Pennsylvania, in the 1880s. Horny projections extended two inches above the eyebrows, and the skeletons were seven feet tall. But other than that, were anatomically normal. It was estimated that the bodies had been buried around A.D. 1200. The find was made by a reputable group of antiquarians, including the Pennsylvania State Historian and Dignitary of the Presbyterian Church, Dr. G.P. Donahue, and two professors, A.B. Skinner of the American Investigating Museum and W.K. Moorhead of Phillips Academy, Andover, Massachusetts. The bones were sent to the American Investigating Museum in Philadelphia, where they were later claimed to have been stolen and have never been seen again. So, a couple of things going on there. Two major ones. One, tall skeletons, seven feet tall. Yeah. Almost eight, maybe, maybe more. Who knows? Another big factor, they have horns. Yeah. Okay. That puts a, a different twist on things because now you're getting into the uh, more so into the area of the Bible and yeah. people possibly wanting to prove that antediluvian. Giants from the Bible, the Nephilim, were in America. Well, somewhere they have right. to be somewhere. The point is, is that they were real. The yeah. Bible is real. The old, especially the Old Testament, where yeah. things were even crazy. The literalists want. To, yeah, it's time to get into it. Right. And so, in the mid to late 19th century, if there's evidence of that, well, there you go. And so much the better for their cause. And. How can you refute that? Bones were found. Explain that, Mr. Smarty Pants. (laughs) So then the idea here is that you're heading from now possibly fantastical beings of antiquity and the Bible to a conspiracy by the academic establishment or I guess the research establishment and whoever makes all the history books. Yeah. (laughs) Because they're all going to have to be rewritten now. And so the fact that you're you're sticking in there that the bones got lost somehow, who knows, but they don't want to have to deal with it, you know, puts a seed in people's minds that really there's a truth out there that uh, they're not wanting us to know. Yeah, and, that, and a lot of people still believe that to this day. Now, these people that are mentioned here in this bio about Skinner, they, these are real people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they're documented. And there are some things about this passage, you could say, that are real. So, I wanted to know where Mary Sutherland got this information. What was her research sources? And that was really hard to do. (laughs) This this whole process. was funny. Scott earlier was talking about everybody throwing information into the river. And I had that lone question out there like, yeah, but what about this Sayre, Pennsylvania thing? And nobody really found much on it because it is kind of hard to find. If you just Google Sayre, Pennsylvania, skeletons and skulls with horns, burial mounds, you're going to get this passage more often than not. This is what's going to come up. So that's interesting. And a picture of a skull... With horns on it, with oh, some decorative yeah. uh, tchotchkes on it, knickknacks, <laughs> bric bric-a-brac. The fact is yeah, that- Yeah, that, that picture sticks with you, by the way. It does, because it's really weird. It looks animalistic in a lot of ways. We've and got demolished. it in our shots on the website here, for yeah. this, and, and a link to all
1: the stuff we've been talking about, as usual.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. And there's one really good website I actually really just started getting into today, actually, doing a deep dive on it. I was kind of skimming it before. I knew it had some interesting info on it. It's one of my 400 tabs that are open. (laughs) That's a little bit of hyperbole, but not much. Uh, And it's called SpanishHill.com because that is the name of the mound. And it's, uh, I wanted to mention who puts it together. It's Deb Uh Twig. She's kind of a a local historian and researcher, does some writing, uh, does some presentations On what she's found, I think for decades now, she's been really fascinated by the subject because it is really fascinating. So she's done a lot of research on this and she's got a website. Her section here, her tab, you could say, on giant skeletons, number nine, section number nine, the story and the truth surrounding the horned skeletons, quote unquote. So the paragraph goes on to say, horned skeletons? As you look for more information on Google or on the web in general, you will undoubtedly see stories not only of giant skeletons, but horned skeletons as well, found in our area. I have read where this horned skeleton story immediately hit the wires, quote-unquote, and was covered by papers across the nation. And you can click there to see an article from 1916. This is on uh, Deb's website from a local newspaper concerning the, quote-unquote, horned skeletons. Deb goes on to say, It seems that when the newspaper articles died down, the story continued with a life of its own, and was included in many books covering the, quote-unquote, strange and unexplained, such as... Now, this is a passage from Robert R. Lyman Sr.'s 1971 book, Forbidden Land, Strange Events in the Black Forest, Volume 1. Now, this is a quoted passage from the book. Quote, At Tioga Point, on the Murray Farm, a short distance from Sayre, in Bradford County, an amazing discovery was made. Dr. G.P. Donahue, state historian... Together with Professor A.B. Skinner of the American Investigating Museum and Professor W.K. Moorhead of Phillips Andover Academy uncovered an Indian mound. They found the bones of 68 men, which were believed to have been buried about the year 1200. The average height of these men was 7 feet, while many were much taller. On some of the skulls, two inches above the perfectly formed forehead, were protuberances of bone, evidently horns that had been there since birth. And uh, Teb goes on to say, this story has, again, surfaced quite heavily on the internet as well, as we've shown and discovered ourselves. Yes. Now, there's another instance where Scott has found it occurring in an article or book later. But I think, as far as I can tell, this may be the earliest mention of this, and it, I think, is from this book, Robert R. Lyman Sr.'s Forbidden Land, Strange Events in a Black Forest. The question about Robert is... Where did he
1: get this information? I did find a website that we visited frequently in the past called Journal of the Bazaar, which is a blog that has a lot of great stuff on it. And I got some information off of that from a 2012 blog entry there that was contributed by Marlon Bressy, who I guess writes for them periodically. I'm not sure if he's still doing that. But the funny thing about it is the article is titled, Solved, <laughs> One yeah. of America's Most Famous Unexplained Mysteries. Resolved And I Ooh, I I,
0: I, like, I actually like Resolved yeah. better well,
1: Yeah so. But they still They managed to get Solved in there twice mm. Really solved and resolved And we sure. always joke about I'll do respect to Marlon we yeah, always, of We always joke about Whenever it's mystery solved There's often More than meets the eye But this is a pretty Great entry here He does a great job Of tracking the story Of the horn Skulls Yeah Back to an origin very close to the one that you found. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, and this has happened to us so many times. It's like when we did the Jersey Devil or whatever. You start looking at the stories that happened in modern times when uh, there were news sources around or or publishing was in play. Right, right. You can't really do this with oral history. Yeah.
0: But you can start to
1: track where stories started and where they wound up. And it's really one of the most interesting things about our job, I think. I love when you can start to say oh, look, this one particular fact, it's almost like a fingerprint on a legend. Sure. There's this one particular fact, and you look at it, and you see that this fingerprint is just everywhere and everywhere. And then eventually what you realize is that it all came down usually to one person who said this one thing that made that fingerprint that then just stays in the story
0: forever. And the more fantastical it is, the more likely it is to have staying power. Right. Now, I will point out here one counterpoint to the stories. Most of this reportage that people are pointing to, and again uh, Robert lyman he 's publishing this in seventy one yeah i 'm going to guess that he 's getting his information from a lot of these newspapers well, exactly and that's that 's something that exactly oh, <laughs> You're get
1: getting
0: better, better at it, sure. Get better. Yeah.
1: I, and that 's something that I want to point to and here 's the reality of this there 's a lot of misinformation about this particular excavation. One thing I did stumble across that I thought was really interesting, and I did want to briefly mention about the mounds and the mound builders, which is it 's too big a topic to, like, go into. I mean, it, it could yeah, be yeah. years of podcasting, really. And out, oh, it's, frankly, It's its his own subject. Yeah, and frankly, it's outside the realm of our expertise. Yeah. Uh, honestly, that is something that should be undertaken by a Native American historian. But some of the interesting things about the mound builders is, you know, they were sacred sites, oftentimes for burials. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we learned is that they would frequently be reused, and often they might even be reused by different cultures. So on the top, there would be A burial. There would be some bones. And archaeologists, or prior to archaeologists, looters would come along.
0: Yeah, looters and also the farmers who came in. you got to remember at the turn of the 19th century, white settlers were coming in and buying up these properties— which before that, of course, Native Americans occupied and lived their lives on and had their own sacred areas, which were not sacred to the white settlers. They yeah. came in, it's like, well, I got to clear this land. What's in this mound? I got I to gotta move this thing. Right. And they would sometimes make discoveries and bungle things and dig up artifacts that should have been left there, but they didn't, you know. Right.
1: And here's one of the things that's interesting too, whether it was the farmers or whether it was looters or even ensuing archaeologists when archaeology was still a relatively young field, they wouldn't realize that the bones on the top weren't the only ones there. Right. That they were from a subsequent culture or from so many generations later. And so what would happen is there would be multiple burials up on the mound, and then it would go lower and lower. It's kind of like Greyfriars Kirkyard. Yeah, it's just yeah. a pile, but obviously a, a more respected one. That place where the bodies were not respected. No. But then in some of these mounds at the bottom, there would be a tomb, a stone room under the mound at the very bottom. And inside this stone room would kind of be the first inhabitants of the mound. And there are stories of large skeletons gathered in a circle around something. There's so many of these. We can't even get into all of them here. But that's what you would find a lot of times at the bottom of the mountain in these excavations. And you can see these images where it's the grass hill on the top. There may have been subsequent burials going up towards the top. And then when you get down to the bottom, there's the stone tomb.
0: Right, a sepulcher, which is yes. a stone-lined area, which sometimes there'd be a stone slab on the top, rocks piled on top of that with sod. Yes. Basically a sacred chamber, you could think of it, instead of like a pine box, which are the, a lot of the, you know, you see in the Westerns, that's what the European Westerners were were using. These are more ceremonial. And, yes. And uh, a lot of times... If you were in a position of power, you had a good spot in there. What's fascinating to me about
1: Spanish Hill in this particular case, and with these mounds in general, is that the cultures, their tradition was oral. Even from culture to culture, sure, there's overlapping tribes in this case that would have been successful or may have died out or moved on, and then other ones come along. But there's still... That history, where yeah. it's like, oh, that's a sacred place. That's where either we don't go there, right, or that's where we bury our dead, and it's a very special place. And one of the things that I read in the course of our research, and I can't actually cite this because I can't remember where I read it, but was that the Iroquois, when they were at war with tribes in the area, even they avoided Spanish Hill yeah they thought of it as a place that they should not go.
0: well, now, here's one interesting thing that this is a relevant tangent, yeah, <laughs> within this. I didn't know where to put this in the uh, in the outline. But That's one, right, folks.
1: We actually have an outline. Can there's you, an outline I can't believe it. <laughs> and, you know, I am so
0: darn curious to see if any of this is going to make sense. yeah, no, one interesting thing that went along with these newspaper accounts and the local lore and a little bit of embellishment, of course, and an attempt to sell newspapers during an era of uh, yellow journalism, yellow kid journalism. And competing uh, for readership was, you throw in a little ghost story. So a lot of these accounts, I believe also in the newspapers, but also that go along in these books and and subsequent accounts, is that people were seeing specters, ghostly images of these giants. Right. And that adds to the lore, because I can personally believe seven or eight feet tall people. And then you start adding in... No, no, ghostly images of ancestors that were, you know, they're doomed to the earth to protect these sites. Yeah. You throw those into the local legends and lore, and it really adds something to it. You know what I'm saying? It it really spices up the soup. You give it a wide berth, too. Exactly. But these aren't just from uh, the turn of the century or ancient Native American lore. Here's something that kind of ties in with that that I believe I mentioned in part one, and this is the Brad Lockwood interview, Yes. I think we've talked about possibly with Jim Harold. Right. But in case I hadn't, again, Brad takes a very logical approach to this subject with a lot of uh, scrutiny and but reverence to Native American lore. He has a large Seneca Native American friend that Brad knows. Yeah. And he he was describing this guy as, you know, he's a giant himself. He's 6'8", 300 pounds, was going to be a professional uh, baseball player at some point. And this friend of his, this athletic guy, afraid of nothing, when he was younger, I think maybe a late teenager, is going home on his three-wheeler and sees a giant specter or something, a giant running through the woods, keeping up with him. Yes. Running through the woods. This is on the Seneca Reservation in western New York, which is where Brad's from. And, you know, again, he's saying this guy is a sober individual and swears that he saw this giant running alongside him. Apparently, the Seneca believe there is a giant cannibal who lives on the top of that hill, and he's known as the protector. Yeah. So it's also a, a way to keep it reverent. You know, like, yes. So the Seneca don't go up there. That's why he was surprised he even knew about it. Right. That's a tie-in, though, with a spectral being a spirit that is associated with these mounds that protect it. And so you see that popping up in these you know, late 19th century newspaper articles and being carried forth into the legends of today with whites and Native Americans as well. So coming
1: back around to the facts about this and about Spanish Hill and how the Iroquois avoided it, you know that there was an oral history there, if that's going on. Sure. Um, But with regard to the origins of the story and the horns and the skulls, the primary point about that is that the excavation of the area goes all the way back. The principal moment was an accidental discovery of a skeleton sometime in the 1880s which then led to further digging. Now, notedly, one of the additional skeletons that was unearthed was purportedly seven feet in length and had a much larger than usual, very thick skull that had a receding forehead and a flattened top. These are very specific details, which I thought was interesting. But what about the horns? Well, in the 1916 excavation, which came later at the same area, one of the skeletons was either adorned with antlers or buried under several sets of antlers, and it is thought that this was a chief or a leader, and that's why the antlers were there. The horns were not necessarily going out of the skull. This idea of these horns apparently got blown out of proportion, and a reader of the Journal of the Bazaar actually sent in images of the original newspaper story from 1916, which talks about the horns. And then two days later, there's an answer there from the person that we were talking about at the top of this segment, Allenson Skinner. So I just wanted to read a couple of quick excerpts here. You can find this article all over the internet, actually. But in the original paper, and it's hard to find, even though we could find this paper in a lot of different places, we couldn't find what paper it actually appeared in. But we do know it was Wednesday, July 12th, 1916, so this article is titled, Chemung's Predecessors, Huge Giants, Were Seven Feet Tall and Had Horns. And then the subheading says, one of the most remarkable scientific discoveries in history, made here 68 skeletons of men living 700 years ago, unearthed between Sayre and Waverly. Men were old at 40. They were surprised at the age that they apparently had lived to. And the way that they judged the age was the lack of suture lines in the top of the skull because those apparently go away after you're 40, which means mine are long gone. And (laughs) so it was a wet, cold morning when R.H. Lord, who has been employed by Professor Skinner in Indian research work for six years, uncovered the earth from one of the Murray Farm graves and carefully scooping away the soil beside an Indian skull, gave a yell, which brought the 15 other members of the party running to the grave. By the way, this behavior is now not allowed by NAGPRA. You do not do this kind of excavation anymore. And if you have any artifacts from something like this, they must be returned and repatriated to the tribe that they belong to.
0: Yes, it's somebody's ancestors. Yeah. Uh, So occasionally it happens— you know, I believe the local tribe, whoever claims ownership, may let them do a little bit of carbon dating or something, but then they must be immediately returned. I don't even yeah. Maybe I not think even the that. tribe has
1: to do that themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah if they're interested, and in a lot of cases, I think they aren't. Right. Um, but anyway, so the fifteen other members of the party came running to the grave. He's got horns! Shouted Lord, who <laughs> talked with an English accent. He's in league with the devil. He surely had horns. Is a subheading under that. And sure enough, he had horns, horns of solid bone, which grew straight out from the skull about two inches above the perfectly formed skull and which gave every evidence of having been there since birth. They were in no way attached to the skull. They were an integral part of it. Then the scientists got out their notebooks and their cameras and searched their vocabulary for words meaningless to laymen, finally hitting upon... Pycanthropus Erectus, as having just the right swing and describing the horns to a nicety. Mm-hmm. This article goes on. I don't want to go further, but you get the idea for the feel of the article and how it was received. That was published on July 12th of 1916. On July 14th, just two days later, a shorter article appeared. Written by Allinson Skinner. This one I do want to read in full because I want everyone to understand the bigger picture here with regard to Spanish Hill and the Horned Skulls. This one is titled, Story Exaggerated. (laughs) Yeah. Subheading says, Morehead Expedition did not find giant skeletons with horns as reported. An article has been going the rounds of the press stating that the Moorhead Expedition, which recently visited Athens and Waverly, had unearthed at Athens giant skeletons with horns protruding from their skulls. Mr. Skinner of the expedition has just sent the following statement to the press stating the true circumstances. The statement follows, quote, Will you grant me the privilege of correcting the assertions of a news dispatch concerning a find made by our party and the alleged discovery of a mound near Sayre, Pennsylvania, in which the bones of men seven feet and more in height were unearthed? The dispatch further narrates the astounding fact that on some of the skulls, two inches above the perfectly formed forehead, were protuberances of bone, the inference being that these monsters were horned. As a matter of fact, Over a month ago, our party excavated an Indian cemetery near Athens, PA, which contained the skeletons of 57 perfectly normal individuals with the usual relics. One of the skeletons was covered by a deposit of deer antlers. Hence, I suppose, the skull with horns on it. This report from Bingington, coming back a month or more later, furnishes an annoying example of the distortion of ordinary facts when spread by word of mouth, the more remarkable since full and truthful accounts were published by the local Athens paper at the time the find was made. Allinson Skinner, Susquehanna River Archaeological Expedition, in camp near Sunbury, PA, July 14, 1916. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Allie. Let's get back to the show. So now I actually want to refer to a book that we've been using for our research on this episode, Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds, and the Smithsonian Files. This was written by Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman. And this is from page 171 of the book. However, there is some intrigue to explore first, as there is no mention of a horned skull in any of the archaeological reports from any of the three excavators. They are only in the newspaper reports. Professor A.B. Skinner, who was one of the archaeologists conducting the dig, quickly wrote an editorial to the New York Times explaining that not only were all the skeletons of normal size, but that there were deer antlers buried at their heads of the skeletons. Someone in the crowd yelled that they have horns. Here is a corroboration of his exclamation in a later book. This is from a book called Aboriginal Sites in and Near Tioga. While the writer was present, one of the men in Working a Grave exclaimed, there are horns over his head. Mr. Skinner said that indicated chieftainship. Later, this was found to be a bundle burial, completely covered with antlers of Virginia deer. A passing visitor, however, heard the exclamation and attempted to verify it by interrogating a fun-loving Maine workman. And the story grew and was printed from coast to coast that one or more of the skulls
0: had been found with horns. Growing from the forehead. (laughs) Right. I have a funny letter. It's kind of fun. Yeah. That Deb Twig also has on her SpanishHill.com website. That is actually from Allenson Skinner, written to Mrs. Murray. It's from the Tioga Point Museum. Uh, But it's a handwritten letter from the Hotel Columbia on their stationery. And it's dated July 18th, 1916. And it goes, my dear Mrs. Murray. Just a line to tell you that the Binghamton reporter got a hold of our coals. This is in his handwriting, so I have to kind of interpret this. Got a hold of our coals in the absence of Professor Moorhead and myself. The newspaper account is main. <laughs> I think this is a term from the turn of the century, Maine woods Bosch. <laughs> which I think is poppycock. Yeah. Plus, and there's actually a plus sign here, yeah. a secondhand interpretation of our skeleton with the deposit of horns over it, dash, hence... A skull with horns on it. He puts he puts an underline <laughs> with an exclamation point. So he's saying like, look, there's a deposit of horns on it. So of course, it's a skeleton with horns. Right. He's making fun of the guy. <laughs> so the workman there was ribbing the reporter. He, yeah, he, he was messing with him. He was messing with him. So yeah, and it of blew reporter, up. It blew up. So basically the letter concludes all uh, aside. I can't read his writing here. Our skeletons were all perfectly normal, but of good... Uh, I think, uh, basically they're in good condition or of, uh, it's kind of hard to read his writing here, but he signs off Allenson Skinner. So that's from the words of the, of the guy who's himself who was there. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> again, right. saying several times, it sounds like he got so frustrated and he essentially wrote to the New York Times. He wrote the rebuttal. He's writing rebuttals all over the place. He's sending these letters. He's like, no, that's not what happened.
0: Yeah. You know, also it's his reputation on the line. He's being associated with it. Yeah. And as we were alluding to earlier, these were real people doing real work because you start to wonder again, I, we go back to the original entry on this, the one that gets cut and pasted and you wonder like, do these people even exist And so. Have if you do a Google search, they do turn up in the journal, uh, which is called American Anthropologist, Subtitle below that new series, Organ of the American Anthropological Association, the Anthropological Society of Washington, and the American Ethnological Society of New York, volume 21, dated 1919. And where these gentlemen are mentioned is a book review, actually a journal review by Donahue And Moorhead by Skinner. So the uh, journal is called, or the one entry, the first entry is called Susquehanna Archaeological Expedition, Second Report of the Pennsylvania Historical Commission, Harrisburg, 1918. These guys go out in the field. Look, they're not as skilled or as sophisticated, you could say, as our archaeologists are now today, of course, and all the tools there are using and the methodologies they use to really preserve stuff. But it's the turn of the century. They're doing the best they can. But they are very respectful as much as they can, except, of course, they're disturbing Native American burial mounds. But for the tone of the time, they're trying to examine and preserve as best they can and report on it, make observations to the best of their knowledge. And so the report is in two parts, which is being reviewed. The first part being a brief summary of archaeology of the Susquehanna by Warren K. Moorhead, And the second paper is entitled The Susquehanna Archaeological Expedition by the Reverend G.P. Donahue. And the review goes on to kind of say that Mr. Donahue gives some account of the itinerary of the party, but goes further into the theoretical side of the work. The writer has no fault to find with Mr. Donahue's deductions, although he disagrees with some minor details. Mr. Donahue justly remarks in the concluding, That, quote, no state in the union affords a larger field than Pennsylvania for investigation of aboriginal occupation. And yet, less has been done in the state than in almost any other in the entire union. Your secretary earnestly hopes that the work of this expedition may be only the beginning of such work in this state. So he's saying Pennsylvania is rife with this stuff. We got to get in there and it's not being explored. And that is exactly the opinion of (laughs) Allenson Skinner. And again, these guys are, you know, nowadays they're probably looked at as maybe, again, not taking the care they should have, but they're respected of the time. So when they come out in a newspaper article saying they discovered something, people are listening. Yeah. At least in that community are listening to what they're saying. And that's why the guy's like, no, there's no horns. There's no horns. There's antlers. People did not have horns on their head. So he wants to make that clear again because these are, things are ending up in anthropological journals. Yes. There's a biography here of Allinson Skinner uh, by Terrence Hanley from the blog Tellers of Weird Tales, Artists and Writers in the Unique Magazine. You know, he's listed as an ethnologist, lecturer, Author, born in 1886 in Buffalo, New York, and he died in 1925 in North Dakota, I believe, in a car accident, unfortunately, not that old. I want to point out one little thing here that might have been a mistake early on. At least the bio says Skinner was associated with three museums during his short life the American Museum of Natural History, circa 1907 to 1915, the Museum of the American Indian, High Foundation, H E Y E. I think it's either Hay or Heya Foundation. That must be
1: a benefactor or something,
0: right? One of his main uh, benefactors to go right. out and, uh, to do these works, these archaeological digs, and collect information and uh, send it back to the museum. And the Public Museum of the City of Milwaukee from 1920 to 1924. Bio goes on to say he carried out extensive research on the Indian tribes in North America, especially the tribes of New York, the Great Lakes region, and the Northern Plains. Skinner also traveled to Costa Rica to study the Indians in that country. The Menomini tribe of Wisconsin was his specialty. A really serious guy. Yeah, but what's
1: interesting there is those three museums that he was associated with. That's exactly what I was getting to. Not the (laughs) Investigating Museum of America or the American Investigative Museum. When we first read at the top of this segment, when we were talking about the citation that tells the story of Sarah and the discovery of the horned skull and the one that's been copied over and over and over and cut and pasted in all these books going back to early history, says the American Investigation Museum, which first of all would be the worst name for a museum ever it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, that's, Secondly, yeah. it doesn't exist. We can't no. find there is no history of it. We have scoured the world electronically anyway yeah. for this museum. It doesn't exist. So I think that's uh, what we threw talked us. about it. Yeah. yeah, we couldn't find anything on it. The American Investigation Museum. What we think it probably was was maybe the American Indian Museum or some other kind of horrible bastardization of one of these three that he actually worked for. Yeah, I mean, but n- none of those are yeah. in Philadelphia. So the whole part of it where Philadelphia lost the bone. We can't
0: even track that down. There is no. There's a couple of things about that because then people say, well, well, then they did find bones, right? Well, yes. But I think, as we mentioned in part one, a lot of these were not in great shape. You'll get bones depending on the conditions of the soil. If it's arid and dry, they dry out, they preserve very well. This is moist ground here. In fact, uh, As Deb Twig describes Spanish Hill, I want to read this little description of the location for those of the people in that area, too. We we do have some listeners over there. Yes, we do. (laughs) Spanish Hill, it seems, is actually closer to the community of South Waverly, adjacent and just west of it, and west of the boundaries of Sayre, the city proper, and just south of the New York-Pennsylvania border, from what I could tell looking at a Google satellite map. And Deb Twig describes it as, Spanish Hill is a huge lone glacial moraine located in South Waverly, Pennsylvania. It is just one quarter mile east of the Chemung River, the western branch of the Susquehanna above Tioga Point, and just south of Waverly, New York, and the New York state border. Interesting factor, at one time, it was located within Waverly, New York borders. I didn't know what a moraine was. I had to look that
1: up. A mass of rocks and sediment carried down and deposited by a glacier, typically as ridges at its edges or extremity.
0: Now, what's a little different here is that this seems to be mostly nature-made, whereas a lot of the mounds in Ohio, the Adena Mound, the Hopewell Culture Mounds... Those are mostly man-made with a lot of effort by ancient peoples in North America, and this seems like to have been a natural feature that was taken advantage of because it's already there. You can see it on a Google satellite map. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's just a natural feature that's like, it's a sacred place because, as we said before, a lot of uh, indigenous peoples will look to what's already there, you know, in nature, for something sacred, because it stands out to them. It's in their neighborhood. So in summation of that original uh, descriptions in the original paragraph, as we read, some of it's true, some of it's a little off, but that gets taken uh, as a whole and and gets uh, passed down for all eternity. Except for this podcast and, and a few good websites. And if you read the original books, you'll find uh, where this stuff originates from or, or follow the trail. But most of us do not have time to do this. Pass we don't down. have time to do no, it. We, we, we had to make time to do that because <laughs> we uh, make time. Well, the, the thing about this is that that's the original nut of the stories that is that true? Or were there horn skeletons? I want to know.
1: Well, and what
0: about the photo? What about that picture that you
1: see on the internet uh, yes. everywhere of that skull with horns coming out of it? Exactly. Well, it turns out we're not the first People to wonder about that either, but when you look at it, you think, Well, there's that picture, isn't that the one in the museum? When you look on the internet, by the way, let me tell you something when you start researching folklore, all you're going to find is wrong pictures with folkloric <laughs> stories, <laughs> and even with the world's yeah. tallest people, there's a whole bunch where they got the wrong person. With the name.
0: now nobody's checking that stuff. No one's you know?
1: checking anything. And yeah. But here's the interesting thing. In Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds, and the Smithsonian Files, the Newman and Vieira book that we mentioned before, they were curious about the picture too. And they had a researcher that they collaborated with in the book. His name is Micah Ewers. And Micah and this reporter, I've always wanted to say that, <laughs> not a reporter, and it's not old-timey days. But yeah. I would like to say Micah and this reporter yes. have exchanged numerous emails about the giants at Castle Now, which is the story that we alluded to in part one about a seemingly disparate events of collections of large skulls that might have all been related. And we had said we were going to talk about it in uh, tonight's show, but we found so much more information. We're actually pushing that to part three. So we're going to talk about that in part three, along with our interview with the amazing giant from Twin Peaks. The fireman. Carl Stryken. Yes. But in in the meanwhile, Newman and Vieira had asked Micah Ewers, the researcher, to investigate where this picture came from. Listen to this excerpt from their book, Giants on Record. He discovered that the skull was acquired in 1959 by the Cernateum Museum of Supernatural History. Here are the details of the specimen. INV, which I presume means inventory, SDD PE 92464. Exorcist's basket and horned human skull acquired by the Cernateum in 1959. Origin, France, between 1920 and 1940. It was looked at in detail by their experts who tantalizingly concluded, quote, Although we thought that the object had been cleverly manufactured, an analysis has demonstrated that the horns are genuinely part of the skull. An in-depth examination and x-rays leave no room for doubt. The skull is not a forgery. What? We followed up, uh, that's end quote, Mm -hmm. we followed up by writing to the curator of the museum who contradicted what was written on the website. He said, quote, the horned skull is a skull made for a cult to pan during the 17th century. Painswick. It's perfectly made, but I don't believe in the existence of horned humans, so it's certainly a fake, but a real cult object, in parentheses. Mm. So, whether this skull is genuine or not remains to be seen, but no matter what, and this is what they say in the book, Giants yeah, so, on Record, yeah. it certainly has no connection to the Sayre story, or the Spanish Hill story.
0: Okay, we cleared that up. We did clear it up, but that, sort of. Uh, it's well, funny, when I so, started
1: reading this, I yeah. thought it was going to totally, I looked at this a, a few hours ago, and I was yeah. like, oh, they're going to say that it's a fake skull, and it's like, actually, no, it doesn't say that.
0: They don't know what it is, but it's not related to Spanish Hill. Okay, let me, <laughs> let me clear this up then, so, just sitting here, because yeah. I, I'd skimmed over that, I, you know, in all yeah. the materials. I think when you first discovered it, it was like, I can't wrap my head around that. Let's just file that away until we get closer to the recording type. Yeah. And so what I'm asking you now, it's obviously used, or what they is believed to have been used as a ceremonial mask, right? No, I. Th-
1: it was more of a cult object. Okay, okay it, different. It's not yes. something you can gotcha. put on.
0: Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Because the reason I, I say that is that that is one of the theories nowadays of people trying to make rational sense of anything horrid or something or, or unusual is that people at the time mistook ceremonial masks for real bone. Yes. So what I'm asking you though is that when you say cult object, of course, yeah, people uh, they steal it, they put it in their basement or wherever they squirrel it away and somebody's doing weird stuff with it during their pizza parties, you know, in the basement. So what you're saying is that this thing is really bone, all bone. This is well, a real Well, that's object? what it
1: says on their website, but this is the thing I can't figure out about them and I have not had the chance to ask Micah Ewers this. I'm going to email him and ask him this question. Yeah. Um, he tends to get back to me very quickly. Yeah, what he found was that it was acquired by that museum in 1959. When I looked up that place, the Cernateum, mm-hmm. I found a website and that skull's on there along with a lot of other creepy, cool, cultish stuff. Wow. It's like a right up our listeners' alley, they would yeah, love it. It's yeah, a neat yeah. website, we have a link to it in the show notes. However, I expected that if it was acquiring objects in 1959, that it must have been a collection on display at some point. Sure. From looking at the website, I could not deduce that it ever was a brick and mortar situation. So it's not clear to me really what's going on here. Because yeah. if you're acquiring things in 1959, are you still around to build websites in 2018 and not have a museum of some kind. There's something fishy about uh, the whole thing. Okay,
0: so what you're saying is that somebody took a photograph of it from... No, they're saying they have it. They have it. That it's a cult object from right. France. Right. But you don't we know... Are it. from you... France. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, there is a conehead thing coming up here later. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly. Stay tuned for that. What you're not certain of is what institution or organization is holding Yeah, I don't understand this museum. Yeah. yeah, I get you. Okay, so... And,
1: so... and they had competing descriptions of it. right. They had a description of it on the website that was then contradicted when they were contacted
0: directly about it. Oh, that's strange. Yeah. This is the bigger, 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 fringy argument, because now we're getting into the real controversial elements of this. And there is definitely controversy out there because there are people writing books that they're purporting that strange creatures do exist from antiquity. And some even claim they're coming back. So get ready for that. And of course, the researchers and writers who just say like, just stop wasting your time with this stuff. This stuff does not exist. There's no proof of it at all. Well, if you have an item that could be analyzed and it's solid bone and it's, you know, that can be determined, I'm pretty sure you can carbon date anything organic. So you can find out the age of it. You know, an expert could tell if this is a real skull with horns. Now, unlike the pictures that we were talking about earlier, I think we have, didn't really need to go into it because there are people with horns, but there are growths of uh, keratin, essentially, gone wild, cells mutating. And so you'll see a a picture of an older lady or usually an older gentleman, takes a while for these things to grow with something coming out of their face. Yeah, But it's not a matching pair of horns that are symmetrical, exactly two inches above the eye sockets, placed decoratively, we could say, that are natural protuberances of bone. That does not seem to happen. If you could produce something like that, then people are going to argue that, hey, giants of yore and possibly stuff from the Old Testament is real. We're just now describing it, and people are actively trying to keep that from you. So that might be a bona fide conspiracy. What you're telling me then, (laughs) there's no... Real horned skulls we can point to. Yes. And on top of that, in this case, in the
1: Spanish Hill case, there are no horned skulls. There is that weird one that belongs to that weird museum.
0: Yeah. Well, Uh, that website
1: is even weirder upon further inspection, which we just took a little break here. I can't tell what's really going on there. Yeah. And then it seems fictionalized, the website. But they have the picture of the skull with the horns, which makes it all even stranger. But they seem to go out of their way to make it clear that it's not connected to Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think because that's the only case that we've come across so far where it explicitly mentions horned skulls. Right. Which is really a tangential find
1: to the overall
0: nature of this arc of our series. Right. So here's what's interesting about all that, is that it's not just white Europeans having these ideas of giants, certainly bringing them over from the Middle Ages into North America. Of course, the Native Americans had their own legends. They had their own giants. And... It's not like the Europeans brought those over to them. So let's take a look at what uh, the Native Americans thought and what are some of their earliest legends about giants?
1: Well, here's an interesting thing about the Sioux tribe that I thought was really fascinating. And this comes from a book by Helen Cody Wetmore about her relative, Buffalo Bill, Buffalo Bill Cody, which I oh, think, yeah, I think yeah. this yeah. is pretty fascinating. I'm going to read this excerpt from page 135 of that book. It was actually first published in 1899. During the scouting expedition that followed, the party chanced upon an enormous bone, which the surgeon pronounced the femur of a human body. Will, which is what she calls Buffalo Bill in this book, understood the Indian tongues well enough to be in part possession of their traditions, and he related the Sioux legend of the flood. It was taught by the wise men of this tribe that the earth was originally peopled by giants who were fully three times the size of modern men. They were so swift and powerful that they could run alongside a buffalo, take the animal under one arm and tear off a leg and eat it as they ran. So vainglorious were they because of their size and strength that they denied the existence of a creator. When it lighted, they proclaimed their superiority to the lightning. When it thundered, they laughed. This displeased the great spirit And to rebuke their arrogance, he sent a great rain upon the earth. The valleys filled with water, and the giants retreated to the hills. The water crept up the hills, and the giants sought safety on the highest mountains. Still, the rain continued, the waters rose, and the giants, having no further refuge, were drowned. So, here we've got this creation myth. Now, we're relaying a version of it that's being told... By a white man. <laughs> right. well, that, that's true. Yeah, and I want to go ahead and acknowledge that. But according to Buffalo Bill, this is part of the Sioux origin story. Right. And... We all know, historically, there have been indications that a great flood is part of the origin story of multiple cultures throughout the world. But this is fascinating because this predates their exposure
0: to Christianity. Right. Theoretically. Yes, exactly. And we didn't have time to really get to the origin story of this origin story. Right. The idea is interesting because, of course, what does it sound like? It sounds like the Old Testament and the Nephilim. You had a race of super beings that defied and angered the creator, the right. one true creator. But there were these still these powerful beings, and it's like, guess what? You guys have done enough down here. I am going to wipe you off the face of the earth because this is not your domain. You're not being cool. So, of course, there's a lot of uh, tie-ins with the Old Testament. Who knows? I mean, that's what's fascinating. Who knows where they got that? However, we discussed flood myth before, I believe, with the southwestern Native American peoples. And uh, was it the Pima? Uh, uh, you were remember the, the, the ball of tar, which the man and the woman as a ball of twigs, I think that they coated with tar and they had some animals with them, but this ball of tar floated and kept them safe. Right. And when the water subsided, they repopulated again. That's exactly, and that's, right. That that's exactly Buffalo, right. That is not Buffalo Bill. That is not Buffalo Bill. That's actually coming from uh, the oral traditions. Yeah, that's true. Of the Native Americans. I think it was the Pima. That would be then maybe uh, Arizona or southwestern Arizona. So these crop up everywhere. That's just so fascinating. And then you wonder again, if there hasn't been contact, the idea of big humans, as I said uh, at the start of part one, it's not such a stretch. We can all imagine great versions of ourselves that are bigger, stronger, that certainly has happened since there's been humans. There's always been a, a mutation here and there, a pituitary gland going haywire. So you get an extra large version and it's like you either uh, revere this person. It's like, you're going to protect us, right? Because we're right. all five, five You're inching up on seven feet and uh, here's a club. Just go out there and uh, battle the enemy first. We'll be right behind you. Yeah. <laughs> and so we revere them. But also on the other hand, if they're horrible, we fear them and they must be destroyed. So... What we're seeing here is, and again, if this is true, if uh, Buffalo Bill got this pretty good translation from the Sioux, it's a very interesting story. Yeah, and I, I
1: was able to look, actually, just a few minutes ago, and I, I did determine that it's not the same origin story for them. You know, there's the right, creation sure. myth, and there's other stories as well, but there is a flood myth present among varying Sioux tribes. Oh, that's interesting. That I could confirm yeah. just But this now.
0: one definitely deals with, though,
1: is terrible giants.
0: Yeah, that one does. Yeah. I
1: mean, that one that Buffalo Bill is reporting deals with giants, yeah.
0: Well, anyway, that's an interesting look at Native American legends, which I personally love. I love hearing about them.
1: It's an interesting thing to me. With, well, we do live in folklore. America. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do live in America, <laughs> yeah. but a lot of the stories that we cover, that's where it comes back to. It comes back to Native American lore at and, and its ultimate root.
0: Yes, it's not an invention of the white man. They have certainly their own tales of giants and all kinds of supernatural beings way before anybody got here. But what happens when the white man first gets here? What are they seeing? So there's good evidence, though, that the first explorers that show up, and the first colonizers that come to America, post-Columbian here, post-Columbus, they have had some recorded interesting encounters with, let's just say, larger than average Native American tribes. Yeah. And Native Americans themselves. Hey, it's Tess. This one time, I emailed AL at com, and all I got was a segue. Come on. All right, back to the show. So now getting back to Deb Twig's Spanish Hill website, mm-hmm. which is, again, a lot of great information. It's a lot of fun to dig through. She actually gives talks, as I mentioned earlier, presentations of her findings and, and her research here. And so she has one about the Carnatuan culture and Susquehannock tribes of the area, which she, I think, presents at the Susquehanna River Archaeological Center. There's some YouTube video. I think it's her. You can actually see her giving the presentation. And it's pretty interesting because she, at least the clip she presents, starts off with the tale of Captain John Smith. And as you may know, if you well, if you don't know, we have a lot of international listeners. But Captain John Smith was, a, he was an English soldier, baptized January 6th, 1580, and lived to uh, June 21st, 1631. And he was an English explorer, colonial governor, admiral of New England, uh, he was also an author, so he was used to writing journals and played a very important role in the establishment and leadership of the Jamestown Colony here in America, which was the first permanent English settlement in North America. And without his leadership, the whole thing probably would have fallen apart. Yeah. <laughs> he was the one, I think he borrowed it from the Bible. He said, if you don't work, you ain't going to eat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you are going to work if you're going to get food here. So just a kind of a fearless explorer. And he first encounters the Native Americans of this area. Now, according to Debs, I'm calling her Deb like I know her, but I, I know I her. She's she's very interesting. According to her presentation, this group was called the Andaste. And according to Captain John Smith in sixteen oh eight, I think that's the time when he encountered them, he describes them as being very similar in dress and appearance and hairstyle to the Huron. And the French missionaries use the word andastes or in Dasties, to describe them. What I hear is that they were said to be the only tribe the Iroquois ever feared. So they're big and they're mean, of course, until the Iroquois acquired guns, and then I think they helped wipe them out. Yeah. Because the gun is the thing that makes all men equal in a way, unfortunately, in this sense, you can be small, and you can go up against a giant, and like David and Goliath, if you have a better tool, like a sling with a rock in it, or a musket, you're going to win. Can I just
1: uh, make a quick aside about the Andaste? There was an SS Andaste. Oh. Wow. Uh, it was a bulk Great Lakes cargo vessel, steel made, built in uh, 1892 for the Lake Superior Iron Company. It sank on Lake Michigan on the night of September 9th, in 1929, with all hands aboard. 25 oh. men were lost. It has still not been found.
0: Oh, that's well, another mystery—a little unsolved mystery there and within the mystery. Yeah, not crewed by giants, though. No, not crewed okay. by giants. as Far as we okay, know. but the name—they've obviously named it after the tribe. I see. Okay. Well, the first known reference that we know of comes from a reference in the memoir, "The Voyages of Captain John Smith, 1607 to 1609." He's the first one to really write about these people to the English, telling about his encounter here with these giant warriors called the Susquehannocks. And he writes in his uh, first encounter here, and again, this I believe this is from the journal, but I'm also taking it from SpanishShell.com, quote, 60 of those Susquehannocks came to us. Such great and well-proportioned men are seldom seen, for they seem like giants to the English. Yeah. Lifting that quote there that uh, he was definitely impressed with the visual side of them, but also the sound of them, because he said their voices to him sounded like they were quote, coming from a vault. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? That deep, like, yeah. yeah. Much better than the giant voice I led off part one with. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> a deep, resonant voice. Another thing he describes, like giant limbs on these people. I'm not sure about this, but this is how he wrote it. I think one of the leaders comes up to him, one of the five leaders of the tribe there come up to him, and he, he said the biggest one or one of the most impressive ones of these guys <laughs> the calf of whose leg was three quarters of a yard around. Yeah. I'm not sure. Is that long or I don't the, know. the circumference of that? So <laughs> that's interesting. Basically, they're huge is what he's saying. Yeah. So Captain John Smith decided it would be best to leave them alone. <laughs> and right. he turned and <laughs> he promptly left them. And as I think if you see the map that he created, because he also mapped a lot of the coastal territories, I think, and, and uh, Oh, he led an expedition along the rivers of Virginia and the Chesapeake Bay. He was the first English explorer to map the Chesapeake Bay area and also the coast of New England. Oh, so, well, there you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. He's up yeah, I make maps. Yeah. He's certainly used to rough conditions, but the sight of these folks scared the crap out of him. So, <laughs> he, so <laughs> I think what you see on the map that he made like that area unexplored. Right. <laughs> Someone else is going to do it. I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine. There'll be yeah, monsters I, there. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to be the guy to have to do that. So here's something interesting as we continue here. Several of the Susquehannock or Andaste remains found in Athens, Pennsylvania, were said to be between six and seven feet tall. The average height of the Andaste, according to the Spanish Hill website by Deb Twig, was around five and six feet, with some exceptional individuals. So around six to seven feet, like maybe the chiefs or the Werowances, the five chiefs that came to greet Smith. They may have been slightly taller than the average. Right. And so even the average Andaste was probably a foot taller than the average European who encountered them at the time. Right. Because back then, the average height for a European in the Middle Ages, let's say the 1600s, about 1608 to 1609, the average height was about 410, 411. I know that's pretty short, but going into five and a half feet, that's average. Now, some of the English kings were even much taller. I'll have a little fact about that later, but the average person with the average nutrition in Europe, five and a half feet. And so now they're meeting people that are six, maybe six and a half feet. Yes. Makes an impression on you. And here's my point. Think about how you see contemporary people today. If you think about a foot, a foot as a unit of measure, it's not that long. It's not like a yard. A meter is about 3.28 feet. It's just a foot. But The way we think about it as a measurement of height, think about meeting somebody who's five feet tall. Picture that in your mind. Now picture somebody you meet who's six feet tall, like big difference. That starts to get tall. Yeah. And then think about meeting somebody who is maybe seven feet tall. Carl Stryken, Carl Stroiken. Yeah. That makes a huge impression, just a foot of height. It's not that common, but imagine now somebody who may be even eight feet tall, And that is very rare, but it does happen. That now really gets your attention. Yes. That's a giant. So a lot of this talk that we're discussing here comes down to what you think a giant is. It's subjective and based on your personal height relative to this person who's larger than you. Exactly. So think about somebody, this is funny, you know, in a relationship, think about somebody who's wooing you. And uh, maybe if you're the woman and you see a guy who's 5'5", you know, unless you're Tom Cruise, Maybe that's not your thing, and a guy who's six foot—that's not a lot of inches, but that makes a big difference personally to how you view them. And the same thing for men looking at women. It's like somebody who's a woman who's in the you know five one to five five. Well, that's about normal for America. A woman who's six feet or taller, then you're thinking like, wow, if she puts on heels. Am I gonna look like a shrimp? <laughs> yeah, so you know these things are considered. So it's a very personal thing. So that's the point I'm trying to make is when you first see somebody and it's a tribe of very foreign-looking people to you that seem big, you're going to remember it. And I believe that's what's happening here with Captain John Smith. It has a lot to do with perception. Okay, so now going back to Deb Twig's SpanishHill.com website, in her attempt to frame the argument here about what's actually been found as far as giant skeletons are concerned. Item number six here comes from the publication Pennsylvania Archaeologist, volume 61, number two, September 1991. And it's an excerpt from an entry by Dr. Marshall Becker. And Marshall Joseph Becker, PhD, is an SRAC advisory board member and a senior fellow in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. I love this part because it sounds very uh, academic, the abstract. (laughs) So here's the paragraph that follows that. When John Smith first contacted a group of Susquehannock in 1608, he described these people as giant-like, quote-unquote. Direct communication of this observation can now be provided through these studies of the long bones of a population which was part of the Susquehannock, quote, confederacy, unquote. Recent excavations at a Susquehannock site on the south branch of the Potomac River in Hampshire County, West Virginia, revealed portions of a palisaded village and associated features dating back to the middle of the 16th century. This remnant of a flood-destroyed site yielded 13 relatively intact burials. Surface collection of skeletal material immediately downstream of the site after the flood provided long bones from at least 18 other adults. Calculation of the stature of the individuals presented in this sample and comparisons with other Native American populations of this period confirm John Smith's observations.: Ah, so, so that's there you go. this collaboration, guy, right? Yeah, there. this guy knows his stuff. So what he's saying is that large skeletons are being found. You know, we're, we're not saying giant, because yeah. again, that, that can be a loaded term, and it's very subjective. But what seems evident, even by today's standards, is that large skeletons have been found. Exactly. <laughs>
1: and before we, before we move on, I yeah. do want to talk about the stonecoats, which is, yeah. is pretty fascinating. This comes from a website called native-languages.org slash stonecoats. Stonecoat is the name of a mythological rock giant of the Iroquois-speaking tribes. In some tribal traditions, there is only one stonecoat, while in others, there is a whole race of them. Stonecoats are described as being about twice as tall as humans, with their bodies covered in rock-hard scales that repel all normal weapons. They are associated with winter and ice, and they hunt and eat Humans. In some legends, stonecoats were once human and became cannibal monsters as a curse, punishing them for evil deeds, like the Wendigos of Chippewa mythology. In other legends, stonecoats were never human, but were a tribe of primordial, man-eating monsters created by flint. Now, I had to look up who Flint was. This is also from the same website, just for a little background. In many Iroquoian and some Algonquin legends, the culture hero has a twin brother or younger brother named Flint who killed their mother in childbirth, usually by intentionally cutting his way out rather than waiting to be born. In Iroquois stories, this spirit is often malevolent and goes on to create hardships for humans and fight with his brother. In Algonquin legends, the character of Flint does not generally commit any further crimes or problems, other than the death of his mother. In many tribes, Flint is associated with winter, night, and death. And so, what's interesting about this to me is that Flint is this guy who doesn't have the best reputation. In one culture, he does. In the other, it's not great but better. But either way, he's created these stone coats and these giants, and it's super fascinating because they're twice as tall as a man and their bodies are covered in rock hard scales that repel all normal weapons
0: yeah very lord of the rings here it is
1: are they reptilian is it is it steel (laughs) are they really made of rock i can't help but think of you know in the back of my mind there's not gonna be a lot of people that are gonna remember this but the old star trek they go to that one planet and this big pile of rocks Oh the rock monster. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. got the two red eyes. That thing creeped me out.
0: Right. Well, the idea here is that uh, <laughs> this is it's kind of supernatural because rock is not malleable unless you're chipping it for flint tools that it, you could make a knife and or hammers oh, or nice axes call back to flint there. Yes, that's exactly what it reminded me of, you know, flint and its importance to native peoples and Neolithic villages of antiquity always. But what's interesting is the visual aspect, you know, myths a lot of times start off with things that people see that they can't explain, or you create a myth to explain things you don't anything really about, like where does the thunder come from? Who makes the lightning? Yeah. Why is it flooding here? Well, these are all uh, myths that explain our, our creation, of course. But in this case, what's interesting is that these stone coats or stone giants, it's kind of a, um, the armor and the cannibalism and the connection to winter and death and misery for human beings that are usually nice is mythic. So in a note here that Tess has put forward in her further research on this stone giants or stone coats... Yeah, this is, uh, by the way, article. this is this is excerpted from Annual Report, Volume
1: 32 by the Smithsonian Institution, Bureau of American Ethnology by John Wesley Powell, Matthew Williams, Sterling... Frederick Webb Hodge, Jesse Walter Fox, and William Henry Holmes. And this is on page 64 from the section called Seneca
0: Fiction, Legends, and Myths. Uh Uh-huh. So this is quoting from the book now. In the Curtin Collection, there are eight stories which refer to the Gononsgua, or stonecoats, sometimes called stone giants, but there is nothing in them to connect these peculiar, fictitious monsters with the original conception. In none are the operations of the winter process predicated of these fictitious beings. They are merely exaggerated human figures and not symbols of a process of nature. Their deeds are the deeds of men and are not the acts of a process of nature expressed in terms of human activity. And thus is founded the race of the stone giants or stone coats, or more popularly, the giants. When once these fictitious beings were regarded as human monsters, they soon become confused with cruel hermits and bloodthirsty sorcerers who because of evil tastes were cannibals and dwelt apart from the habitations of man, who shunned and feared them, and the tales about them became narratives that do not detail the activities of the winter god, the personified process of nature. And so, like with their human prototypes, they increased and multiplied mightily, and so were as numerous as the leaves and the trees. So I think the idea here, why Tess highlighted this uh, section, this is not so much allegory, but... Describing the acts of humans, bad, evil people that have become legendary and have worked their way into myth and legend, you know what I'm saying? Rather yeah. than something being legendary, it's like, well, you know, the beaver brings the sun. Or I just remember the old one. I can't remember what. That's what I was taught when I was in grade <laughs> school. The sun was trapped by a leather thong, and so the animals, you know, they're all burdened up, and the beaver agrees to go chew on the thong because he's got the teeth for it, and he releases. I can't remember who trapped this. A thong? The song. A leather strap. Somebody, you know, oh. some, some trickster. <laughs> One of the tricksters, probably the fox. You know, what it is a oh, coyote. Not like a thong, I'm thinking
1: like, yeah, you know. coyote. You no, know, no, like, not, okay. not a bikini bottom. Actually, okay. this
0: is a, uh, no, it's a leather strap that, you know what I'm saying? Is it's an animal's. Uh, yeah, animals saving the planet uh, of their right. own. So what we're seeing here is that, yeah, it's not an allegory. It's not a story to to describe the process of nature, I think is what we're getting at here, the process of winter. It's that these seem like, at least from this perspective, legendary bad things that people have done. Hermits and black magic practitioners. Think of the Skinwalker Ranch series where you have somebody who becomes a Skinwalker must be shunned by their tribe after having done something horrible like kill a member of the tribe. And so they go off, but they are granted evil powers. In going back to the legend of the Skinwalker, that's an evil act done by somebody who wants to practice black magic. They don't care about being a member of the the tribe and being liked. They want to go off and have these superpowers of running 80 miles an hour beside tourist cars. Yeah. (laughs) Their actions there have become legendary, but they are not indicative or describing of nature the seasons you know what i'm saying it's like the skinwalker brings the fall yeah and the winter and comes and because he's evil and then once he's shooed away the spring can come and the summer uh, you know the leaves on the trees bloom and all that you know what i'm getting at yes. so so yeah. this is what's interesting is that I think maybe what Tess is alluding to is that maybe there were some tall, freaky, giant people that had some kind of strange armor or were able to— Or were otherwise technologically advanced. They knew what iron was, of course, because the Spanish showed up with it soon after 1492 yeah. to create a lot of the terror and havoc and uh, and misery. So they understood the concept of iron and swords. But oh, yeah, but the question is when does this myth originate? Does it predate yeah. that contact by the Spanish? It, it seems to me or to does be it that way. Day. Yeah. Right. So there's something going on here again what I find fascinating about the origins of myth is what sparked this? Is it just some guy, the tribal storyteller who's just really good, he's very imaginative? Or did something weird happen and that gets transmogrified into legend and myth? Is that that's a real word. Probably. Let's just move on. I've I've only read (laughs) it in Calvin and Hobbes, so. Ah, very good. Okay. Well, it's got to be real then. (laughs) Yeah. So that's an interesting concept about this particular legend, which I think we should apply this to the discussion of giants, is that maybe there were some very big people that had some kind of strange ability or I would say technology, but some, you know, especially the armor. And as we'll see a little later on, occasionally a little bit of cannibalism did happen.
1: That's going to wrap up part two of our series on giants. We'll be back next week with more giant talk, including our very special guest and iconic giant, Dutch actor. Carl Stryken, whom you'll readily recognize from Twin Peaks, The Adams Family, and Men in Black, to name just a few of his projects. We'll be talking to him not only about what it's like to be seven feet tall, but
0: also what the hell is going on in Twin Peaks. (laughs) Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free, and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin.
1: Hi, I'm Allison Sellers. I'm Allison Sellers. I'm Allison Sellers.
0: I'm Tess Feifel, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice and research however they see fit. Future carbon
1: Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design
0: is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can
1: also find us at patreon.com/astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.